Mark Hamrick is the Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst at Bankrate.com. Mark, what's your thought about these bank closings? Well, I think, among other things, and there's, I, I have a lot of thoughts about it, but, you know, if anything, you just think about the fact that uh, if we would have talked last Tuesday, it wouldn't have come up, right? And, and so uh, the fact that these things can happen so quickly is, is somewhat of a function of the era in which we live. And yet here we are again, you know, after having experienced the great financial crisis, the financial crisis associated with the pandemic, and federal regulators are having to put their uh, fire hoses to work again. It's funny because we talk so much about the impact of the Fed's move on interest rates, but we mostly think about that in, in terms of a variety of things. I, I didn't think it would go to suddenly banks can't make money. They can't cover the deposits. People start to withdraw money. There's a run on a bank, albeit one Silicon Valley in California and then one other bank out east and then one crypto bank. So these banks are three. Are they isolated cases, do you think, or is there something larger at play here? Well, I think the problem, John, is that uh, the risk in the financial system is very hard for uh, even people who make a living uh, examining that uh, to gauge. And, for example, uh, I've shared with some of my colleagues a report on financial stability generated by the Federal Reserve last November where it highlighted some of the risks that uh, we've seen now come to light, but they didn't sort of put those you know, highest on the list. And even in his testimony last week, which was, I think, as late as Wednesday, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell didn't have anything uh, to say uh, this could be a problem. So uh, so I think it would be foolhardy for me to say, you know, with any degree of confidence that either this is the end of it or there are other shoes to drop. I just think that there are unintended consequences of what the Fed failed to do with failing to um, tighten monetary policy earlier and then having tightened so aggressively here, uh, all in the context of more recently, uh, prioritizing the battle against inflation. And this isn't the first crack, right? We, we saw the stock market go into a bear market. We saw the housing market basically chill for 12 months straight, and we saw the crash in crypto. But this is clearly the most dramatic thing to happen and, and the one that required a response on the part of federal regulators, as they have. U.S. economy added 300-plus thousand jobs in February. What's your take on that? Yeah, uh, you know, that would have been the headline today otherwise. But, um, you know, I think, if anything, uh, the job market has remained surprisingly robust. And we're talking about an average of essentially 400,000 jobs being added a month in the first two months of the year. And the unemployment rate's still relatively low at 3.6%. And by the way, had the government not done what it did today, we would have seen uh, new applications for unemployment benefits uh, all throughout the country, but particularly in California, skyrocket again because companies wouldn't have been able to make payroll and, and, and therefore the company would have uh, had to wind down. But um, I think, if anything, uh, it was uh, heartening to see the supply of labor rise in the February employment report. Um, the thing that the Fed watches in the sense of average hourly earnings or the measure of wage growth is quieting down a little bit. So it doesn't see a so-called wage price spiral as being a primary source of inflation. And of course, we have the consumer price index due in the morning, uh, which will at least uh, try to peek its nose into the news cycle for a minute. 
Well, how does this one tip, though? Because if you raise the interest rates, it puts more pressure on the banks. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't, the employment numbers are going to stay low. The unemployment numbers are going to stay low. Uh, employment will stay high, and that will fuel inflation ultimately. So what's a Fed to yeah. do? Well, for one, uh, investors through Fed funds futures are saying there is less of a chance of a rate hike now than uh, would have been the case this time last week. Yeah. Uh, and I think you know there had been increasing speculation based on Powell's testimony that they would go back to a 50 basis point or one half of 1% rate increase of the March 22nd announcement. But I think when we're talking about the stability of the financial system, uh, that would probably give some amplification to the voices in that room to say, you know what, let's just stand pat for a while because let's just see how Mm -hmm. this plays out Mm -hmm. in such a dynamic environment. What is your advice to people worried about their deposits in their banks? Yeah. Well, first of all, we got a lot of material at our site, which is free, as you know, johnbankrate.com, that addresses these uh, issues. And I think what we saw come to light in the last 24 hours was that the federal government is standing behind depositor money and to make sure that even those who have funds above the typical $250,000 per individual per account limit, that those depositors will be kept whole. Uh, and that's really for uh, the both micro and macro aspects of the economy, meaning uh, the economy to the person level, to the enterprise or business level, but also in the broader overview of the economy. Uh, and so, you know, if you are fortunate enough to have more than $250,000 per individual per account at an institution um, or $500,000 for a married couple, and again, it needs to be federally insured, whether it's a bank, savings and loan, or credit union. Um, then you need to look at making sure that those funds are covered by uh, these insurance funds. Otherwise, if you don't have that much money in an institution, uh, then you don't need to worry about it because they're, they're guaranteed anyway. Obviously, investor funds are always going to be at risk, and, and those are some of the, the investors in equity and, and um in bonds uh, are at some risk here, but um, but that's always the case that, that investors uh, stand to lose because that's the nature of that of those markets. Okay, Mark, a lot of ground there in a very short space of time. I appreciate your insight. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk again soon. Always a pleasure, John. Thanks for having me, Terry Savage. For the third time and not the last time today, Terry, um, I got a lot of questions for you. Anything else we need to know since we no, last? No, I just spoke? think. John, you've been doing a great job of covering this. Glad to be part of it. It's a story that could get people really messed up and emotional, and we've been uh, trying to give the facts. Here are some questions from our listeners. If our deposits are covered for $250,000, are couples covered for $500,000 in assets in a bank? Yes. Ask Terry about the Silicon Valley Bank not loaning money out and that impact on their failing. Well, it wasn't that they weren't lending money out. They were lending money, um, but they have to keep reserves on their on their loans. That's their their that's their capital. They, that's the law. And where do they put those reserves? They put them in government bonds. Now, arguably, they could have put them in short term bonds, short treasury bills, just like I've been telling you to do. You could yeah. get five percent last week. But they wouldn't make very much money, so they went longer term and to mortgage backed securities and so forth. Slightly illiquid, and prices went down when rates went up. Terry, did the bank pay bonuses just hours before the collapse? How the heck is that okay? I read somewhere that two weeks before... 
they had paid out their bonuses. I haven't seen the details on that, but it makes sense. Most corporate bonuses get paid in February, January, February. So it's entirely possible that the regular annual bonuses, it, they didn't know they were in trouble. And guess what? The regulators didn't know they were in trouble. They looked at the balance sheet and said, okay, you've got all these uninsured deposits. Maybe they should have said, whoa, you've got a lot of uninsured deposits. And then they looked at what they were invested in. Oh, you're invested in U.S. government securities. Well, that looks okay. Until someone called into question the value of those securities now that rates have gone up. And it, it popped just like that, like a balloon. I don't like that. I, it seems to me like what you've been saying, while you just said they didn't see it, it seems as though they should have seen that. I don't like how there's gonna be a, the banking system seems this way. There's going to be a lot of hindsight because they wanted the uh, Dodd-Frank made sure they had plenty of capital. It didn't talk because this is what bankers are get paid to do. They get the paid bucks, paid the big bucks to do it, to manage their assets their deposits are liabilities. They could go any moment. Manage their assets to make sure that they could deal with their liabilities. Nobody looked beyond, oh yeah, it's government bonds. That's cool. Oh, what about the maturities of those plus the huge amount that could walk out the door tomorrow? That's a crisis. I'm not sure you can, well, we'll see. There'll be many attempts to regulate that now. What about this? 217, speaking of, is it Frank Dodd or Dodd-Frank? Dodd-Frank. Um, is the SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, failure related to Trump rolling back Dodd-Frank? Well, there's going to be a lot of politics around that, too. It's true that under the Trump administration, they accepted some smaller banks in an attempt. Now, watch this, because you can justify that. And they will. People will. That the, they wanted local banks, regional banks, smaller banks, to exist for the benefit of local businesses, and that the cost of complying with Dodd-Frank, as I remember the discussions at the time, was so onerous and so so penalized the smaller banks, so we would give them a little more leeway um, on these regulations. So now, in hindsight, of course, everybody's looking at for who to blame. That'll come in for, you know, what'll come in for its share of blame is, number one, bank management. You knew you had big deposits that could walk out the door, and you, you invested long-term, even though it was U.S. government securities. Bank regulators, the San Francisco Fed, you're supposed to be examining this bank. Did it never occur to you that these people have long-term, 10-year government bonds, mortgage-backed securities, U.S. government, and deposits could walk out the door? Oh, government, you didn't enforce the Dodd-Frank. You wanted to make exceptions for smaller banks so they could thrive and do business in communities. Well, it's you, the government. There's a lot of things. That can, and, of course, the Fed. You raised rates. You were fighting inflation. You made these deposits, these uh, assets, worth less, the bonds that they held. Because who wants your old low-yielding bonds when you could put money into new higher-yielding bonds? So if you have to sell them, you get less. So, right. Fed, you're to blame. Everybody's plenty of blame to go around. Okay, but this will sound political, maybe it is, but to those who say that regulations from government are inherently a bad thing when it comes to labor, when it comes to climate, when it comes to banking, <laughs> maybe regulations aren't always a bad thing. 630 says, ask Terry to talk about the previous administration who ran interest rates effectively to zero and the bank's responsibility to, mass as to match asset maturity to obligations. Not wait, sure what wait, all of that wait. means. No, no, wait. It wasn't the previous, I'm no apologist for any political administration, but it was the Fed who, in, first of all, it was 
let's go back to Congress. We're going to send out you a, ch- a stimulus check, a second stimulus check, double the unemployment benefits, and the Fed accommodated by buying IOUs from the government, putting money into the economy. And the Fed said, hey, remember, inflation's not a big deal. It's just because we put this money in, but it's going through the economy. It won't last. It was transitory. Then they went, oops, we were late. It's not transitory. We'll start raising rates. And we had more inflation. Then they said, oops, we got to raise rates more. And the real question as we leave, I know we're up against a break here, is now what does the Fed do? We're going to have a consumer price number tomorrow. We're going to have a Fed meeting in a week. Tomorrow. Wow. Yeah. Will they raise rates again? Um as everybody thought it was going to be 50 basis points, will they raise them even a quarter? You're hearing words called pause. If they've given up the fight against inflation, oh my goodness, that's why you have gold up. But we don't know, and it's going to be something we have to watch every day. Okay, I'm looking at my producer, Pete. Pete, do we have time for another question or two, or we got to take a break? Pete says we got to wrap it up. Uh, I know that Lisa will probably be calling on you as well. <laughs> Thanks for doing what you're doing today. Thanks, John. It's a crazy day. It's Terry Savage. Jim Dalkey's here. National editor at American Inno. ChicagoInno.com is where you find a lot of reporting. And it's most often about the venture capital scene, about innovative companies that need capital. And so you have these investors that have the money in the bank and they invest. But when they all pull it out, the bank's upside down. So are we vulnerable to that in the Chicago area too, Jim? What's going on? Hey, John. Yeah, it's been a, a crazy four days. I'd say the, the last weekend or so has been a roller coaster for startups. would be a major understatement. Um, the, Silicon, the Silicon Valley Bank situation you know, has really caused chaos across startup land, and this is not just for companies in Silicon Valley. Um, for some context, SVB um, it really has established itself as the go-to bank for startups. You know, around half of all venture-backed startups um, across the U.S. are our clients of SVB, and, and that includes many in Chicago and, and Midwest, in the Midwest and, and elsewhere. SVB was, you know, a, where a lot of founders and venture capitalists also did their, you know, personal banking. They did a lot of mortgages uh, through SVB. SVB was just a really, uh, you know, a, a friend and a partner to the innovation economy. So, um, you know, as everything was sort of un, unrolling last week, all of a sudden with payrolls due, you know, founders cannot access their bank. Um, so, you know, folks were scrambling to cover these immediate immediate expenses, you know, turning to their investors, um, customers in some cases, you know, companies sort of sending email blasts asking for customers to buy products really quickly. And, you know, in some cases, you know, you know, startups moving funds to their personal accounts, right? So this really caused a ton of chaos. And my colleague at Austin NLSR branched down that covers startups in Austin was on the scene. South by Southwest is going on this weekend, right? So he's down there at, you know, panels and networking events as this news broke, um, you know, and he was reporting that founders and VCs were literally walking off the stage mid-presentation, mid-panel discussion as they're getting sort of frantic texts and chat messages from their investors and other founder friends saying that, whoa, this is a, this is a really big deal. So um, it has been a, a major shakeup across the startup ecosystem, uh, certainly not just in Silicon Valley, but in, in major emerging startup hubs across the U.S. Well, what does that mean to some Chicago companies? Do you have names? I mean, are there consequences? Will, will these companies not have the funds to cover their needs? Well, luckily, uh, you know, the news on Sunday afternoon um, gave everybody a huge sigh of relief. So that 
fact that the federal regulators stepped in and are going to cover all of these uh, uninsured accounts above $250,000 means that everyone will be made whole. So, you know, really the next step is now, you know, where do we bank, right? So, there, you know, there are a lot of startups that banked with Silicon Valley Bank and now have to go elsewhere. Um, so luckily, you know, the total catastrophe was avoided over the weekend. If there had not been um, that announcement, if that decision had not been made, we could be looking at a much different scenario here on Monday morning. Um, so, you know, we're working through it. We're talking to a lot of founders who were able to pull funds out at the last second. So they had a little bit of cyber relief earlier. But now knowing that, you know, that their, their funds are going to be able to be accessed today at some point today, um, definitely it brings a lot of cyber relief. And that means, Hey, our employees are, are going to, you know, meet payroll as it comes through this week. Um, and we're, you know, kind of avoided a major catastrophe. But, it, I mean, it was a big wake-up wake call for, um, I think, a lot of companies. And now they have a decision of, hey, we had this, you know, partner in Silicon Valley Bank. And I really can't stress this enough. You talk to founders, and Silicon Valley Bank was just a different sort of bank. They, they sort of got, quote-unquote, got startups in a way that a lot of traditional banks didn't. You know, I was hearing one founder kind of explain it, that, you know, try going to your regional bank or to a sort of big legacy bank and explaining this speculative, high-tech, early-stage venture-backed startup. Right. Um, they often just don't get it, but Silicon Valley Bank did and was a big partner for a lot of these companies. It's interesting the way you put all of that, because I think a lot of us hadn't heard of Silicon Valley Bank, and we thought, well, that's out there, and that's for those high-risk rollers who are playing a dangerous game, say, La Vie, but it's, it's broader based than that. If, if the regulators, if, if it wasn't decided to save deposits over $250,000, we would have felt that in most major cities in America. Is that true, Jim? That's exactly right. Um, and a lot of startups have had, you know, accounts that were far greatly exceeding $250,000. And so that's why it was such a, a sort of a panic inducing event for, for many companies. Um, and yeah, I mean, these are, you know, I, I think there's a misperception that Silicon Valley Bank is, is, you know, sort of one just for Silicon Valley and is a sort of coastal lead bank. But I mean, there are a lot of, you know, heartland tech companies that relied on, on, on that bank to, to, you know, to do their finances. And so it would have had um, ripple effects you know, had that, that decision not come through Sunday afternoon, um, that would have negative, negatively infected um, many, many businesses, including several in Chicago. And so, um, yeah, this is, this is a, a, a move that um, certainly had at more, far greater, uh, you know, impacts beyond Silicon Valley. Does this change in some way the way investors look at companies or companies court investors? I wonder what the landscape's like after this. Well, the one thing that investors love to say to startups is value add. We are adding value to our businesses. And, and startups really got a, a dose of who are the investors that, are, that they have that are really adding value because, um, they, you, know, they were, you know, lots of investors were sort of wiring cash, emergency funds to startups in case the Silicon Valley Bank situation did not get resolved. Um, so there were a lot of founders um, that were really leaning on their investors to kind of come through in very tricky situations. And so I think what we found over the weekend was that investors got a or startup founders got a sense of who are the investors who are really sort of out there looking for them and have their back and really adding value. Let's just segue to some of the things we normally talk about. Can you tell me about Clear Flame Engine Technologies? 
Yeah, this is a clean energy startup in Chicago, actually backed by Bill Gates. So Bill Gates' Breakthrough Energy Ventures Fund is a previous investor in Clear Flame Technologies. They retrofit diesel engines to run on cleaner fuel. So really high-tech, clean energy startup here in Chicago. Just raised an additional $30 million. Bill Gates' fund, in, uh, again, invested in these guys. Um, this is uh, you know a really interesting high-tech startup here in Chicago and one definitely to keep an eye on. They were on our uh, annual fire awards list last year where we honored 50 companies that are really kind of disrupting the tech scene in Chicago and and Clearflame definitely kind of on that track. And, hey, not a lot of companies in Chicago are backed by Bill Gates, so Clearflame is definitely one to keep an eye on. What about Pluey? What's the story there? Yeah, Pluey, they uh, are a really uh, interesting startup. They were just on Shark Tank, actually. They have created a self-sanitizing diaper station. So uh, using some UV uh, light, they're able to sort of self-sanitize a diaper-changing station when it closes. Um, so if you've ever been to a... Uh, public restroom or place where you've had to change a diaper, you've probably noticed that they are a little less than sanitary at times. And so Bluey is able to kind of self-sanitize and put these things in, um, you know, think major spaces like uh, ballpark stadiums and other kind of big public areas. Uh, they were just on Shark Tank asking uh, $500,000 for 5%. So uh, if you've ever watched Shark Tank, you know that the sharks are typically not in favor of deals like that. So they ended up leaving the tank without a deal. But hey, typically when you uh, get a chance to be on Shark Tank, uh, just the, the exposure enough is worth it. Jim Dalkey, senior editor, ChicagoWindow.com. We'll keep reading more. And we always appreciate your expertise. Thanks for the time, Jim. Thank you, John. The Wintrust Business Lunch. Here's more business news with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Electric vehicle maker Rivian wants permission to see other people in its relationship with Amazon. The automaker, which makes vehicles in downstate normal, wants to alter its exclusive partnership with Amazon so that it can sell electric vans to other buyers. The move comes after Amazon's decision to buy fewer vans than initially planned from Rivian. Amazon wants to buy 10,000 vans this year, and the Wall Street Journal says that falls at the lower end of its agreement to buy 100,000 vans by 2030. Rivian's shares dropped when Amazon announced last year it had also signed a deal with Stellantis to buy electric vans. Guinness will open a brewery this summer in Chicago's Fulton Market District. Cranes reports the brewery will be the second U.S. location for the Irish beer company. The Guinness Open Gate Brewery will include 15,000 square feet and also include a 10-barrel brew house, tap room, restaurant, retail shop, patio, and private event space. The brewery at 901 West Kinsey will have a staff of about 75 people. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Let's get to the business of food and Steve Alexander. Thank you, and I've got another one of those companies you probably haven't heard of, but you sure know its products. After, I tell you we're sponsored by the Chevy Silverado HD. Experience your life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. The unknown company is Gilster Mary Lee in Chester, Illinois. We're an hour south of St. Louis, right on the Mississippi. And this company goes way back. It does. Uh, to 1895, the Gilster family came over from Germany. It began as a flour mill and then a cake mix business. And Tom Welge is the fourth generation to run the company, which is now a very big operation. Today we have about 3,000 employees across 12 plants 
in Illinois and Missouri. Gilster Mary Lee is a food business that makes private labels, the store brands. We produce about 400 different brands today. It's it's around 5,000 different items. And Midwestern farm products are turned into cereal, microwave popcorn, and mac and cheese. And probably one of our most uh, interesting and challenging products is marshmallows. Oh, what's challenging about marshmallows? Uh, if you do it wrong, you have a terrible mess. <laughs> well, they do it right, and they make over 30 varieties for stores like Jewel and Walmart and more. But their claim to fame? Celebrity cereals. Probably the original, which is the Flutie Flakes. Big, big seller. So was Mahomes' Magic Crunch. We've done two promotions with Patrick Mahomes. That was a huge promotion both years that it ran. Yeah, he's pretty popular. He is, and he helps sell cereal. And this is cool, along with the Illinois Manufacturers Association. We had a essay contest across the state. And the winner got to design their own cereal to promote their own high school. And the winner was a student at Red Bud High School. And so we're developing a Musketeers Cinnamon Crunch, and we'll be delivering 2,500 boxes of that to her school. And then they can sell that as a fundraiser, donate them to a food bank, whatever they want to do. But it's kind of a cool way to highlight not only manufacturing, but the importance of the food industry, which is the biggest industry in the world. And Gilster Mary Lee will be holding this contest again. What's it called? Create a Crunch. It'll be held again this fall. Gilster Mary Lee, a big name working in the background of the food business. It's Chicken Noodle Soup Day today. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Elliot Richardson, co-founder and president of the Small Business Advocacy Council. Talk to me about what the mayoral candidates should be talking about. Elliot, what do you want to hear from them? John, thanks for having me. Um, you know, this is a crucial uh, mayoral race for small businesses and neighborhood business districts. And what we want to hear from the mayoral candidates is their ideas and their policy proposals as it pertains to things like cutting red tape for small businesses, empowering and supporting commercial uh, corridors by reducing vacancies and their ideas about how to get that done, how to better connect City Hall and the small business community and Chambers of Commerce so that good policy proposals can be brought forth, can be put into uh, into the light, and can be passed uh, and supported by the mayor. So we're looking for solutions. We have a lot of ideas about that, John, and we're looking for a very proactive approach from the mayoral candidates and from our next mayor uh, that will support small businesses and revitalize commercial corridors. You're going to need a mayor that can work with the city council then, aren't you? Oh, we most certainly are. We're going to need a mayor that can collaborate, that can work with the city council and can tackle these issues that have been looming for a long time for small businesses, like uh, the process by which you get permits and to get things done at City Hall. It often takes way too long. Yeah. Small yeah. businesses want to open their shops. They need to get going. They need to get their merchandise or their services out to the public and waiting on permits and things like that. It really has a huge effect on small businesses, things like consistency on inspections, so that a small business uh, in Chicago knows they're going to get the same inspector, if at all possible. And there's going to be consistency when it comes to that inspections. So important. Um, the red tape issue is the bane of so many businesses. Some cities tout that they can get you approved in 24 hours. You're lucky in Chicago if you get it in 24 days. And that's why I wonder if it's really the city council's ball. Like the mayor can put it in play, but you'll need support from the council as well, won't you? 
Yeah, I, I mean, and you're going to need support from the council and for the mayor for really wholesale changes. You're 100% right. In 24 days, John, I mean, that would be a dream. A dream <laughs> for sorry. a lot of I'm sorry. entrepreneurs who want to open up a storefront in a neighborhood business district that desperately needs that commerce. And how long have we been talking about this, right? How long it takes to get a simple permit um, so that you can open up your business. We're going to need city council and the mayor to work together um, on things like that. And zoning, how often do we hear about zoning being such an impediment? the fees, the process for a small business. Let's remove those barriers. Let's remove that red tape. Let's get businesses going, reduce vacancies, which we hear all about crime, right? And safety in Chicago. Well, vacancy breeds crime um, and a lack of safety. And it crime breeds vacancies. Uh, what specifically do you have in mind? Like how, uh, Michigan Avenue's got a vacancy rate that's not good right now, to say nothing of some neighborhoods. Uh, what, what do you want them to do to fill those spots? Well, first of all, we got to look at the tax code, um, both on a county level, state and city, and make sure the property owners are not being incentivized to keep their properties vacant. That's the first thing. Um, and that should be done on a holistic level with policymakers across the board. Secondly, you know, if somebody's going to sign a lease to open up a store, whether it's Michigan Avenue, whether it's in Lawndale, whether it's in Lincoln Park, they've got to be able to do it quickly. It should be all hands on deck. How to improve these processes to get a business opened and running as soon as possible. The fees, you know, it's it's death by a thousand cuts, John. Right? How can we start to remove these fees so that people and potential business owners want to come into the city and yeah. take a risk. Yeah. These are all things that should be done, and really it's low-hanging fruit. It's right there. Um, <laughs> we need city council, and we need the mayor to just get going and to do it. Elliot Richardson is the co-founder and president of the Small Business Advocacy Council. I think he's got his finger on the right pulse, Small Business Advocacy Council. .org's the website. Elliot, let's catch up again soon, but thanks for giving us your thoughts today. Hey, John, thank you so much for having me.